You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 166, General Burgoyne Surrenders. Last week, we covered the Battle of Bemis Heights, the final effort by General Burgoyne to push his British force down the Hudson Valley and cut off New England from the rest of the continent. Instead, Burgoyne found his own army cut off from Canada and unable to reach Albany. Following his defeat on October 7, 1777, Burgoyne's army moved into a defensive posture. The Americans had remained in the field that night prepared to resume their attack the following morning. Burgoyne, however, removed his army about a mile north during the night. The British abandoned their field hospital and around 400 wounded to be captured by the enemy. They could not carry the wounded and did not have food for them. The British leadership believed that the wounded would be better off in the care of the Americans as prisoners of war. The Americans woke up to find the battlefield was theirs. A cold, driving October rain drenched everyone as they recovered from the battle. Burgoyne spent that day and the next retreating further north to Saratoga Heights, where his army had built entrenchments as they had advanced weeks earlier. From his entrenchments, Burgoyne desperately awaited word from General Sir Henry Clinton and clung to the hope of a relief column marching north from New York City. On the American side, Benedict Arnold's leg was so badly wounded that surgeons wanted to amputate. Arnold refused to allow it, and endured months of suffering as he slowly recovered. At first, he moved to Albany, where he spent most of the winter. Later, he returned to Connecticut, where he would continue his rehabilitation. Without Arnold to urge more offensive action, the victorious general Horatio Gates once again settled into his defenses on Bemis Heights. General Benjamin Lincoln raised the concern that Burgoyne and his army might try to escape north and return to Fort Ticonderoga. Gates permitted General Lincoln to lead a group of militia north to hold the ford across the Hudson River near Fort Edward. While Lincoln was moving north on October 8th, the day after the battle at Bemis Heights, he rode ahead of his militia, personally scouting the area ahead. While riding through a thick woods, he ran into a group of soldiers who he thought were local militia. Lincoln rode within a few yards of the group before he realized they were actually British regulars and some of their German allies. As Lincoln wheeled his horse around to escape, the group fired on him, shattering his leg. The wounded general managed to ride away and return to his own forces. Lincoln's wound was rather serious. Like Arnold, the army evacuated him to Albany 
where surgeons recommended amputation. After three months in Albany, Lincoln was transported to Boston to continue his rehabilitation. There, he underwent several more painful surgeries to remove bone fragments from his leg. The injury would keep Lincoln away from active duty for nearly a year, returning to service in August of 1778. Meanwhile, General Gates sent militia under the command of Militia Brigadier General John Fellows to take 1,300 men northward to contest any British attempt to cross the Hudson River. While the British Army retreated, at least one Brit refused to go. Lady Harriet Ackland had been with Burgoyne's army since it had left Canada. Her husband, Major John Ackland, had been shot in both legs and taken prisoner. During the British retreat, Lady Ackland decided that her place was with her husband. Ackland was also pregnant with her second child at the time. In the middle of the night, on October 8th, again, there was a driving rain that night, Lady Ackland traveled downriver to meet up with the Continental Army. General Burgoyne provided her with a note and sent her aboard ship under a flag of truce. Several miles downriver, she came upon sentinels under the command of Colonel Henry Dearborn. By this time, it was after one o'clock in the morning. Dearborn convinced the young woman to spend the rest of the night in a small house that he had commandeered as his headquarters. Dearborn assured Lady Ackland that it was too dangerous to travel at night and that he had met with Major Ackland and that his injuries were not immediately life-threatening. The next day, Gates's aide accompanied Lady Ackland along with her maid and Major Ackland's valet back to headquarters. There, she met with General Gates. The American commander acceded to her request to be reunited with her husband. She would help nurse her husband back to health while he remained an American prisoner. Two days after the battle, on October 9th, General Gates learned that the British under Henry Clinton had taken Fort Montgomery. Gates now feared that a possible relief force was on the way to rescue Burgoyne. He advanced north and confronted Burgoyne's army before any possible relief force could arrive. The Americans kept the British pinned down on Saratoga Heights for several days. Morgan's riflemen picked off any British soldier who dared raise his head out of the entrenchments. On October 11th, Gates received word that Burgoyne's army had crossed the Hudson and had retreated back to Fort Edward. Gates now believed he was only facing a small rearguard on Saratoga Heights. With this information, Gates deployed much of his army under General Nixon and General Glover, along with Morgan's riflemen, to advance on Saratoga Heights through a dense fog. The problem was, Gates's intelligence was wrong. As the army advanced, they came across a British deserter. General Glover personally interrogated the regular and asked about the forces that had marched to Fort Edward. The deserter informed Glover that a small detachment had attempted to move to Fort Edward, but found all the passes blocked by American defenders. As a result, they had turned back and that the entire army remained at Saratoga Heights. Now, the deserter could have been giving him misinformation. Glover told the man that if he lied, he would be hanged as a spy. The man stuck to his story. 
If true, it meant the Americans were marching right into the most heavily defended British lines and would be cut down. In fact, the deserter's story was true, except about the informer being mistaken about why the detachment to Fort Edward had returned. It, the detachment actually probably could have made it, but General Burgoyne had recalled them. General Glover was able to call off the advance and pull back the Continental soldiers before they marched into a death trap. Instead, the Americans continued to blast away at the American defenses from a distance. The increasingly desperate British soldiers were out of food, they lacked access to water, and were almost out of ammunition. More concerning to some, the army had run out of rum. On October 13th, General Burgoyne held another council of war to decide on next steps. Even Burgoyne accepted that another attack was impossible. The army's line of retreat was also now cut off as General Stark had brought his militia army to block any northern passage for the British. Burgoyne proposed dissolving his army and allowing each man to try to make his way through the woods back to Fort Ticonderoga. The other officers balked at the idea. They then got down to answering some serious questions. Had other armies surrendered in similar situations, would it be dishonorable to surrender in this situation? Everyone seemed to agree without debate that surrender at this time would neither be unprecedented nor dishonorable. The final question was whether surrender was absolutely necessary. After some debate, the council agreed that it was, if they could obtain reasonable terms from the enemy. Burgoyne sent a messenger under a flag of truce to request a discussion with General Gates the following morning about ending the hostilities. General Gates already felt assured of final victory. The day before, he had written a letter to Congress informing them of his great victory. He did not bother to write to General Washington, his immediate superior. With this victory, combined with Washington's loss of Philadelphia, Gates seemed once again focused on his dream of replacing General Washington as commander of the Continental Army. On October 14th, Major Robert Kingston carried Burgoyne's terms to General Gates. Kingston informed Gates that Burgoyne was willing to fight another battle, but he was also willing to agree to a ceasefire to discuss terms. Gates was having none of it. He knew Burgoyne's situation was desperate. He announced his terms to the Major, which essentially amounted to unconditional surrender. The Army would ground their arms and surrender as prisoners. When Kingston returned, Burgoyne convened another council at which everyone agreed that the terms were ridiculous and that they would rather fight to the death than accept them. After they calmed down, Burgoyne sent another counterproposal. The British would march out of camp, ground their arms, and march to Boston. They would be permitted to retain their baggage, and officers would retain their swords. From there, they would be allowed to embark for England on the condition that no officer or soldier would again return to fight in North America for the remainder of the war. Burgoyne may have liked these terms, but this was certainly a bad deal for the Americans. The British Army had lots of soldiers all over the world. 
Burgoyne was simply suggesting that his army would be deployed elsewhere in the world, thus freeing up soldiers there to return to America and continue the fight. Amazingly, though, General Gates accepted the proposal, only with the stipulation that it be completed by 2 p.m. that day. Now, Gates's quick acceptance of these terms made Burgoyne suspicious. Why did Gates go from demanding unconditional surrender to agreeing to all of Burgoyne's terms as long as it got done quickly? Burgoyne suspected that Gates had received word of a Clinton relief force and that he wanted to finalize the surrender before that relief force arrived. Burgoyne, in fact, was right. Gates had received word that a fleet was moving up the Hudson River, and he feared that a relief force was in fact on its way. This was the military force under General John Vaughn that Sir Henry Clinton had deployed upriver after the British capture of Fort Montgomery. The intelligence Gates received was sketchy. He feared that a relief force was much larger than it really was, and that it might pose some real threat, which it did not. Clinton had sent the offensive to be a distraction, and it almost worked. Burgoyne, however, did not take advantage of the moment to finalize the generous terms. Instead, he asked for a postponement, which Gates granted. As a delay tactic, Burgoyne proposed that each commander send two officers to negotiate the exact details of a final surrender. On October 15th, Continental Colonel James Wilkinson and Militia Brigadier General William Whipple met with British Lieutenant Colonel Nicholas Sutherland and Captain James Craig to work out that final agreement, which both commanders would then review before final approval. That evening, the British said they would agree to everything except one word. Rather than call the agreement a treaty of capitulation, they wanted to call it a treaty of convention. Not getting hung up on that one word, General Gates agreed. That same night, a Loyalist entered the British camp with a rumor that the British had captured Albany and that part of Gates's army had moved south to engage. Once again, General Burgoyne gathered his top officers to decide whether they should break the agreement they just made and fight on. The majority voted that, even if the story was true, they had already agreed to terms, and that it would be dishonorable to go back on that agreement. Burgoyne, however, was still not convinced. He knew that he could not mount an attack or pull off a retreat, but his army could defend its entrenchments long enough for a relief force from Albany to arrive. The next day, Burgoyne sent a letter to Gates saying that he had received intelligence that much of the American army had been detached and that their agreement had been based on the numerical superiority of that army. Burgoyne insisted that Gates allow the British to see if the army was as large as General Gates claimed. By the time Gates received Burgoyne's latest demand, he was assured that there was no real threat from the South, and had reason enough to back out of the agreement himself. Instead, he sent a note back to Burgoyne saying that there would be no more discussion. Burgoyne could agree or not within the next hour. Burgoyne once again called another council of war at which all of his officers objected to pulling out of the agreement. Even if Clinton had taken Albany, and there was still no evidence that he had, 
there was no way for the army to hold out as long as it would take for Clinton to fight his way to Saratoga. Only General Burgoyne himself seemed to be reluctant to end this thing. Out of patience, General Gates sent word that his messenger should return with the signed convention or he would launch an attack immediately. The messenger returned with the convention containing Burgoyne's signature. That same day, October 16th, British General John Vaughn was doing his very best within his limited resources to help Burgoyne. Vaughn had taken 1,700 soldiers up the Hudson River as far as Kingston, New York. This was more than 100 miles up the Hudson River from New York City, but it was still 50 miles south of Albany. Vaughn had hoped to provide a distraction with his small force, which he did. The town of Kingston had served as the Patriot capital of New York. Earlier that year, the first Patriot state legislature had begun meeting there. Governor George Clinton had taken his oath to become the first Patriot governor in Kingston. As Vaughn's fleet approached, the legislators fled. Governor Clinton attempted to march a militia force of about 1,000 men to Kingston to confront the British. But as the fleet approached, there was only a handful of local militia to meet them, and they fled after a brief firefight. Vaughn landed his force and marched up the hill to the town. There, he heard a rumor that Burgoyne's army had already surrendered, but had no way to verify it. Moving forward, he ordered all the buildings put to the torch, burning the homes of over 4,000 people. The attack took about three hours. After that, the fleet continued north to the home of Robert Livingston, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and at that time, Chancellor of the Patriot Government of the State of New York. The British burned Livingston's mansion and all neighboring buildings around the estate. Vaughn's force remained in the area for about a week. He did not try to advance any further upriver toward Albany. After receiving confirmation of Burgoyne's surrender, he sailed his fleet downriver to New York City again. His only stop was to burn Forts Clinton and Montgomery, which his army had captured earlier. On October 17th, the British and German forces at Saratoga Heights marched out of their camp grounded their weapons, and prepared to be marched as prisoners to Boston. The Brunswickers gave their regimental flags to the Baroness von Redesel. She sewed them into a pillow and eventually smuggled them back to Brunswick. General Burgoyne changed into his dress uniform, which he had planned to wear on his entrance into Albany. He, along with General Redesel and General Phillips, and a few others rode out to meet with General Gates. Burgoyne and Gates had known each other since they were both lieutenants in the same British regiment 30 years earlier. Gates greeted his old comrade, saying, It's good to see you. Burgoyne responded that it actually wasn't so good to see him, and offered his sword in surrender. Gates took the sword, but then returned it, and invited the enemy officers to a banquet. As part of the convention, General Gates had promised that the British and Brunswick armies would be marched to Boston and then sent back to England. That, however, was not in the cards. 
At first, General Glover marched the Convention Army, as it came to be called, to Cambridge, just outside of Boston. It remained there for nearly a year. During that time, about 1,300 prisoners escaped, and most of them established new lives in America. The Continental Congress and General Washington did not like the terms of the Convention, and found excuses not to fulfill its terms. Congress instructed General Burgoyne to provide them with a list of all officers in order to ensure that none of them ever returned to North America. When Burgoyne did not provide that list, Congress used it as an excuse to hold the army. Later, Congress voted to hold the army until King George III directly ratified the convention, which was unlikely since that would recognize the independent authority of the Continental Congress. After a year in Cambridge, the Continentals marched the prisoners to Charlottesville, Virginia, which gave another 600 or so prisoners the opportunity to escape and also begin new lives in America. The remainder of the Convention Army stayed there until 1780, when the war moved to Virginia and the prisoners were taken to a more secure location in Frederick, Maryland. As was typical, captured officers were given parole and could live in whatever accommodations they liked. Soldiers were kept in miserable, poorly constructed barracks and held there until the end of the war in 1783. Those who had not escaped by then or died finally returned to England. Almost immediately after the surrender, Burgoyne began writing a series of letters back to London, blaming his loss on the strict instructions he had been given and the lack of any support from the main army in New York City. At first, he became a guest of General Philip Schuyler, who had returned to the army for the surrender, even though he no longer held a command position. Schuyler might have been able to offer Burgoyne accommodations in his luxurious upstate mansion, but for the fact that Burgoyne had ordered it burned to the ground a few weeks earlier. Instead, the Schuylers took their new guests and took up accommodations in another country manner. As a prisoner, Burgoyne actually apologized for burning Schuyler's home, but Schuyler dismissed it as fortunes of war. Burgoyne would then travel to Cambridge, and after a few months receive parole to return to England and begin his political battles over the blame for the loss. Schuyler also took in the Baroness von Redazel and her two daughters. General Redazel approved of this, knowing that a gentleman would take proper care of his family. Both would leave after a few days and travel to Cambridge to be with the army. The Baroness spent the rest of the war with her husband as a prisoner on parole with the Convention Army. When General Burgoyne returned home, General William Phillips became the ranking officer in the Convention Army. He remained with the army, along with the Redazels, and became a popular guest in Virginia in elite social circles. Phillips would be exchanged in 1780 and return to duty, and we'll see his involvement again in future episodes. The victorious General Gates became the toast of America. Gates, as I said, seemed to want to replace Washington as commander and resumed his attempts to snub Washington and criticize his leadership. This would also create problems that will be the subject of future episodes. But for now, he was the conquering hero who had defeated the British Army. 
The victory at Saratoga was, of course, a major turning point of the war for many reasons, not the least of which was its effect on France's decision to join the war a few months later. The war further south around Philadelphia, however, pressed on. Next week, General Howe seeks to clear the Delaware River and open up Philadelphia for the Royal Navy. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis for their continued support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level, and for Mike Hager, who supports the podcast at the Robert Morris Circle level on Patreon. Also thanks to Frances Dumas for her one-time contribution via PayPal. This week, we finally got to the surrender of General Burgoyne's army. The general dragged out the surrender for weeks, hoping against hope that something would happen to get his army out of this jam. Certainly, surrendering to an army that you had dismissed as rank amateurs a few months earlier was a reality that he probably didn't really want to contemplate. But consider that every day of delay meant more suffering and death by the soldiers who were literally starving and dealing with disease and exposure He had to do something, and he couldn't wait forever. Even after the surrender, these men had to march hundreds of miles to Boston, where they were supposed to be returned to London under the terms of the surrender. And let me just say that those terms were, quite frankly, ridiculous. Horatio Gates gets portrayed as being the hero of Saratoga for the final victory. But remember, Gates took command of the Continental Northern Army just weeks before the victory. General Philip Schuyler had set up the winning strategy. We could analogize this to the quarterback who comes in when the ball is on the one-yard line and then pushes it over the goal for the winning touchdown. Of course, that analogy is probably giving Gates more credit than he deserves. As I discussed last week, I credited Benedict Arnold with the victory and only for disobeying Gates' orders. So maybe a better analogy is Gates being the coach who calls in a play, the quarterback ignores him and scores the winning touchdown anyway. Then the coach takes all the credit for the win. And since I'm using a football analogy, let me just say that a fall without Big Ten football is just very disconcerting. But I guess it at least gives me my Sunday afternoons back to work on this podcast. Anyway, Gates is the commander when the Army wins Saratoga, and the country gives him credit for it. 
But then Gates pretty much gives it all away by promising Burgoyne's army safe passage back to London. General Washington and the Continental Congress had to use some rather, shall we say, lawyerly tactics to back out of Gates's promises and keep the army as prisoners. So, while Gates gets the credit for this victory, he did not set up the strategy. Officers serving under him won it tactically by violating his orders, and he attempts to give away the main benefits of the victory at the surrender. And this is Gates's greatest moment in his life and in the war. He will prove himself to be a disastrous commander later in the war after he literally abandons his army after a major loss and rides by himself back to Congress. I've said it before, and I will say it again, Gates is a weasel and is overrated. So, even though Burgoyne's army remained prisoners, General Burgoyne only spent a few months in America before receiving parole to return home. When General Burgoyne returned to London in 1778, he re-entered politics as a member of Parliament and joined the opposition peace wing within Parliament. Parliament, of course, held hearings over the loss at Saratoga, and Burgoyne wanted to be in London in person to defend himself. Burgoyne, though, never got the direct inquiry into his leadership. In fact, leaders in London suggested he go back to America to remain a prisoner along with his army, an option Burgoyne declined. However, Parliament did hold a larger inquiry into the matter in 1779 going over all the events and decisions that led to the loss. Blame at those hearings primarily fell on General Howe for his lack of support to Burgoyne's army as planned, and also fell on Secretary of State Lord Germain, in part for giving Burgoyne too little discretion and for giving General Howe too much discretion. I'll cover London's Saratoga inquiry in a future episode. The immediate results, though, were that General Howe would lose his command in North America, and of course also the war changed dramatically as France openly entered the conflict. Once France entered the war, Britain was no longer looking really to win the war, it was looking to minimize its losses. And again, I'll talk about all that in future episodes as well. As a capstone to the Saratoga campaign, I recently interviewed author and professor James Kirby Martin, he recently wrote a chapter in a new book called The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. The book covers the course of the war in ten chapters, each one covering a different military campaign. The book's editor is Edward Lengel, but each chapter is written by a different expert. And as I said, Dr. Martin wrote the chapter about the Saratoga campaign, and I expect to release our conversation as a special episode sometime in the near future. My book recommendation this week is The Generals of Saratoga by Max Mintz. The book focuses on the events leading up to the surrender. However, it gives a great background on the lives of both Generals Burgoyne and Gates. It's a relatively short book at just over 230 pages, not counting notes and index. Professor Mintz is a professor emeritus at Connecticut State University. He's also written a book about the war with the Iroquois during the Revolution, as well as a biography on founder Gouverneur Morris. 
I believe that Dr. Mintz is still living and recently celebrated his 101st birthday. His book, The Generals of Saratoga, was published in 1990. I think this book is a nice complement to some of the other books I've recommended in previous weeks about the Saratoga campaign. This one, I think, is a good supplement because it focuses on the two generals who won or lost the battle. So, if you want to check it out, it's called The Generals of Saratoga by Max Mintz. My online recommendation this week is a more general one. It's a website called History Author Talks. This is a relatively new site that holds discussions with authors of history books about various issues. You can watch videos of past discussions or get information on upcoming live discussions. Each episode lasts for about an hour. I found the topics and speakers to be quite interesting. And as I said, it's great that you can participate for free in the live discussions, or if you can't be around for a particular one, the recorded videos are also available on the site. And although historyauthortalks.com is a very generic name, I think that every single one of the topics thus far has been about the American Revolution. So, as I said, check it out, historyauthortalks.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.